Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back listeners, Sam here again for this episode looking at handing over with acute medical registrar in the Wales Deanery, Dr Alice Hall. We talk through the highs, lows, do's and do nots of handing over and how this might differ as a medical reg versus what you might be used to as a more junior doctor. And as usual, a shout out to the legends over on the Buy Me A Coffee page who have donated over the past couple of weeks in the lead up to this festive period. A huge thank you to Matt Landells, to Fee, to Sam Lipworth and to Ruth Porther, all of whom recently passed their paces. I absolutely love hearing your success stories. They just get better and better and absolutely delighted for all of you. And if you've enjoyed the podcast or it's helped you in your clinical practice in the lead up to your exams, or maybe you just want to spread some Christmas cheer, you can support the show directly with a pay what you can donation over at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, let's get into this episode discussing Handover with Dr. Alice Hall. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. And this week, we're covering something slightly off the beaten track in our Being a MedReg series. And we are delighted to welcome acute medical registrar in the Wales Deanery and delightful family friend of mine, Dr. Alice Hall, to the show. So welcome, Alice. Hi, Sam. Good to see you. And I've wanted to get Alice on the show for a long time. And so we're going to be discussing something slightly different this episode. We're going to be talking about handover, Alice. Now... Obviously, everyone listening will have been involved in some sort of handover, and so it's really important thing to get right. And uh, we were talking before the record about how it's so important to get right and how you certainly remember times vividly when it's done less well. So it's it's really important skill to have, isn't it? Yeah, I think when I was a junior trainee, it was something that I was scared to do because I'd never really been taught how to do it. And then when it's your responsibility to sort of coordinate it as the medical reg, you you're kind of trying to guide people through it while you're learning too 
Um, and yeah, I, I find it the most irritating and yet vital part of any shift. <laughs> <laughs> irritating yet vital. As many things are. As many things in the <laughs> NHS are, absolutely. And so Alice and I are going to be talking through a few things around how to hand over well, a few pitfalls that people might fall into when they start to hand over, things that really do need to be handed over, as well as things that don't, as well as the different types of handover, depending on whether it's a weekend day, weekday, in hours, or handing over at night. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. So Alice, if we start off talking about the purposes of handover, why do we even bother handing over when we get to the end of a shift? I suppose the the key thing is for patients, isn't it? We definitely need a way of communicating patient safety and to each other and making sure that everything from hand change with the baton in the olden days that didn't exist, which was to detriment to us as trainees and also to patients. So patient safety being the utmost, but also just generally getting the job done, making sure you know what's there to do, who needs to do it, what team mix you've got. I think the thing I like most about handover is not just the practicalities, but the fact that you get people who are working a shift in a room together, probably for sometimes the first and only time that whole shift. So it's an opportunity to know what skills you've got, who's around and what needs doing. That's how I used to think of it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And you're so right, because it's probably one of the only times you might get through the whole shift where you've got the whole team together during the course of a shift. So it's a really critical time for prioritisation and delegation of tasks, depending on the type of job, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about later in the show. But the other thing I should mention to our listeners is that there is a great source of information from the Royal College called the Acute Care Toolkit 1. And you may well have heard me talk about the Acute Care Toolkits in other episodes of the podcast, but the Acute Care Toolkit 1 is very much focused on handover. And so, Alice, you're now an ST6, so you have been around a few hospitals in your time. And the thing about handover is that it massively varies on a hospital-to-hospital basis, doesn't it? Yeah, I think some places that have structure and somebody to kind of spearhead the structure and standardization of handover sometimes that works really well if people buy into it and especially as the medical regs because generally it falls to you to kind of lead that communication episode for want of a better word and when it's standardized it's really good and that's what the toolkit suggests you do is to standardize it in your hospital or your trust or in wales health boards and by doing that, it's supposed to make it safer. It's like any protocol or generalized procedure tool. It just means your brain has to do less remembering. Whereas where I've seen it less effective on my travels, as you kindly pointed out in my senior position in age and experience, <laughs> is um, is probably where I find it frustrating when you're the medical reg because you've seen it really good once, let's say, in the hospital around the corner. And then you have to try and explain to people who have never seen that done why it's good. And I've tried to do it as a quality improvement project before, because in acute medicine, we do a lot of that at the front door. And it's impossible. It is literally such a divisive topic. And yeah, it's sometimes done really effectively, sometimes really poorly. And it's kind of our experience over the years that builds what your handover looks like. 
And I just tend to say at the beginning of handover, there's usually about eight voices all at the same time. Some people thinking that the F1 just hands over to the F1 and the reg doesn't need to hear about that. And I just say, right, one person at a time. That's how I roll. We're going to do it like that. Everybody listens to everything. And some people look like I'm some kind of banshee, like a crazy, scary lady. But I think it's so vital. It's so important that we all listen to each other. And I might then hear something that's relevant for a different member of the team to delegate. And that's the key thing. Yeah, love that. And definitely one of the things that I've experienced in my uh, less experienced travels, let's say, is is the fragmented grade to grade handover over a collective handover when everyone gets heard. And often if it's an easy fix, the registrar can just jump in and say, you know, that doesn't need to be done overnight or make a uh, provisional plan so that when the junior has the results of whatever test, they can just action it straight away and at least decide if it needs urgent action overnight or at the weekend. And I completely echo your sentiment on trying to change the culture of handover at a trust. And it's very difficult to do without buy-in from the established members of staff at the trust. And all I'd say, if any listeners are trying to change a handover process at the hospital where you work, you must just try and get buy-in from the seniors at the trust. Otherwise, you know, you'll rotate out of the trust and your handover protocol will go with you. Exactly. And actually, that's a similar thing to knowing who's on your team, because we've in our, my current hospital, there's a, an amazing team of nurse practitioners, critical care outreach nurses, the F1s, the IMTs and me at night, particularly. And um, the people that are left left behind, inverted commas, are the people that you need to get on board with your ideas, because all they want, particularly the nursing colleagues at night, um, in terms of the advanced nurse practitioning team, they genuinely want it to be better. Their handovers are extremely well protected. They're used to having time away from that. And we don't ever do that. So they just want it to be good too. And I think getting those people on board and knowing your team in a multi-professional sense is probably another way handover can make a big difference. And so if I can lend some structure whilst we've been yammering on, uh, the main thing we've tried to paint the picture of is that it will be embedded in the hospital policy and culture, uh, which is mentioned in the acute care toolkit. And they also recognise it being a multi-professional team activity. And we've talked about outreach nurses. Sometimes the ICU team, the medical team will come to handover. You've often got clinical site there. You've often got the manager on call. And so having these people available, particularly as we're coming to the busiest time of the year for us, is really important as the medical reg to to be an effective team leader when uh, you're on call. Yeah, totally. In my current hospital, the day to night is really easy. It's in the mess. It's not a great, it's not a fabulous place, but it's a place same time every day. The problem comes in the morning. And because there is no specific time, the consultants do the post take at different times, the nurses shifts change at different times. It's like trying to solidify a location is almost impossible. And that's why the handover falls down at that time. (laughs) 
And the next thing we were going to talk about is the clinical urgency of the jobs you're handed over. And so I have designed this as a traffic light type system, and we will very quickly uh, come to how this will be relevant as a medical reg. But I've started off with the relatively non-urgent jobs, the green jobs, which are going to be handed over. And I thought as an example, uh, this might be something which will only slightly or minimally change the management of a patient, such as... Um, checking the bloods um, which need to be retaken for stable patients that might have hemolyzed and uh, need to be redone but won't change your management and these are often the sorts of things which are handed over from F1 to F1 overnight aren't they so Alice what what ideas did you have about green jobs or what what thoughts did you have about the green jobs yeah I think um the trouble is, I think that often falls to the more junior staff to come to handover with those things. And often the more junior staff take them away. And the issue that I have with them is not that they exist. It's that people don't respect that they are important in some way. They're just not urgent. So a lot of the time, I think my biggest tip for new medical registrars would be when the green jobs are being handed over and you're thinking, I literally don't want to be here. It's 9 p.m. I've not slept. The coffee machine's bust. Is to really is to really listen to those green jobs and just help get rid of them before they even become a thing, before they even need to be written on a piece of paper. Um, but to make sure that everybody hears them, they're not in, they're not necessarily urgent, but they need doing. It's just trying to put the right person in the job, I guess. But bloods is a classic, isn't it? Potassium bloods or the cannula for something that's not needed till the morning. It's just like. Yeah, but you make a really good point about urgency and importance, which often are uh, contested between us and the other members of the uh, multidisciplinary team, uh, whether or not something is urgent or important. All right, so moving on to our amber jobs, and I've earmarked these as where the patient's management may be altered uh, for patients who are receiving treatment but have been stabilised. So these might be ward patients whose initial presenter complaint has been addressed, they're making a recovery from their initial diagnosis. And these are the jobs which are probably more balanced, you might say, in terms of their importance and urgency, aren't they? Yeah, I, these are the ones that I miss as the medical registrar <laughs> because you don't tend to do much with them. The internal medicine trainees kind of take the helm with these, I think. Um, but they're really useful as a category because then it gives you a bit of a I guess a barometer of how bad things are in the building. If there's like 87 amber jobs, then you're going to have to use your team wisely because the poor SHO can't go around gassing every DKA, NIV, CPAP patient. But they're my my favourite category, I think, amber, despite the fact that I'm supposed to be talking about red as the med reg. But amber is quite satisfying. Yeah, and I think it goes as the sort of unsung hero of jobs. Yes. Because... If they're not done, then chances are you, as the reg, will be looking at a patient in three hours' time who didn't have that gas, didn't have their NIV adjusted, and now they've got a CO2 of 14 and a GCS of 8. Yeah, exactly. And they're also the unsung heroes because when they do happen, no one goes, great job. Ah, (laughs) yes. That's a great point. The patient goes, cheers, lads. Thanks for checking my ketones are better and my pH is normal again. (laughs) No one ever says, hey, how did that go? Well done. Thanks for keeping the ship afloat. No one does that. (laughs) But it's, it's key. Exactly. Exactly. It's a great point. 
So in many ways, you describe the diligent SHOs as the swans of the hospital, cool and calm and collected above the surface, but uh, busying themselves away behind the scenes to keep the patient safe and the hospital ticking over. And so a few examples of amber jobs that I came up with was uh, repeat blood gases for NIV or DKA patients, uh, ensuring they're recovering. And the other one I came up with was chasing a D-dimer. The D-dimer lottery. <laughs> the old acute medicine classic. If positive, request CTPA. And then red. Uh, and this is where you should really be operating as the medical reg. And so I've earmarked this as uh, for the jobs the need doing for the unwell, unstable patients in the early stages of treatment who have probably come in on the medical take in the last few hours. So, for example, making decisions on a patient's ceiling of care, um, managing complex patients with multiple comorbidities, situations where the diagnosis isn't actually known yet. And uh, the other one I've marked is people who might not necessarily be unwell, but they might cause you trouble overnight. Uh, the, the agitators you know and um so alice any other thoughts on the type of red jobs which are more likely to be uh reg to reg handover or mm. the other members of the team will say they probably need to be seen by a reg rather than anyone else yeah it's interesting isn't it because i i classify them kind of as clinical and non-clinical probably because there are some red jobs i think all of us will be familiar with the kind of clinical conundrums that the medical registrar is expected to kind of deal with. There are so many unknowns in those decisions as well. So even when you get to the end of the bed, profound shock, for example, you know, the wet and warm or the wet and cold and all those kinds of things, those assessments still are difficult and they take loads of time. And I'm not putting away from that. But the things that I find the most difficult, because with clinical things, you can try something. If it works, great. If it's not, do the other thing. Um, but with the non-clinical conundrums, the non-clinical red stuff like... We had one the other day. There was the fire alarm in A&E. First of all, I have never heard a real fire alarm in a clinical shift in my life. It's always a Wednesday morning and it goes off and it stops. And goes, oh, don't worry, it's a fire alarm. A real fire alarm went off and the, my phone went onto the fire alarm alert thing. And I remember thinking, I don't know what to do now because that is technically a, non, a non-clinical red panic stations, just ring the medical reg, they'll know what to do. But things like that, site-based things, not even clinical things, like something like um, seeing patients on ambulances. Am I allowed to do that, Alice? Say my juniors. I have no idea. Or a patient absconds who's on a section or something. And I'm supposed to know the answers to those things. They're time critical, but they're non-clinical and they're still your problem. But you just got to kind of, same as a clinical problem, just have a system and work your way through your system. And if you genuinely don't know, you're allowed to say, I don't think I'm supposed to know that. I don't know what to do in a fire alarm. I don't know what to do if someone absconds. That's fine. Yeah, really interesting. And uh, the other um, source of information for situations like that obviously are uh, the wider members of the team and for things like that yeah. I've always found the most helpful people are the sisters in ED yeah. you know they're they're so experienced they've seen everything done everything they know everywhere in the hospital and more often than, than not they can give you a decent answer uh, for example like managing situations like that with high-risk absconders answering questions like you know do we call the police or not I don't know but, you know, there we are. That's what we're charged with as the yeah. medical reg. 
So sort of similar for the Amber ones, but may include some things like escalating care to intensive care for patients who uh, are for full escalation, um, starting meaningful treatment interventions such as NIV or uh, GTN infusions, uh, and managing basically the most unwell patients in the hospital. And so Alice, did you have any other thoughts on red jobs in particular? Not really, except I suppose the value of handover in the treatment escalation bit of the clinical information you give as a as a colleague because actually that takes a lot of time to do right and well and I think if we we train so long to be clinic clinicians that that bit I'm a big I'm such a big fan of communication skills and I think if you get that right for a handover just just saying what you've where you've got to in that discussion is so valuable, especially for the incoming team. Because even though I'm I'm senior in terms of training years, the the that that sort of sinking feeling when you're like, oh, this sounds like it's only going one way. And I really hope my friend Bob, who's come to handover, will have discussed this because I know what I'm gonna have to do first before I do anything else. And if you nail that right for the patient as much as anything, that bit in handover is really important to get right. And, and you know what Bob's like as well. Well, exactly. No judgment. <laughs> We're all friends and compassionate beings, but seriously, Bob, come on. <laughs> Perfect. And so the next thing we're going to talk about is the different types of handover between uh, shifts, whether you are giving or receiving a handover, and uh, more generally a discussion uh, around the types of things which are handed over on a weekday to a weeknight, from a weekday to a weekend, or even a uh, weekend to a weekend night. And so if we start off talking about weekdays and your bog standard um day to night shift, weekday handover, Alice. So what types of things are usually handed over on these bog standard days to nights on a weekday? I, yeah, it ranges, doesn't it? I think the commonest thing is not often something that's lingered from the day team, the classic day team to review. I love that phrase. But the the day team of norm, the 5pm finishers, I mean, the normal days, <clears throat> they've normally done a cracking job. And a lot of that stuff, the tidying up the CT report, the the, the in-betweeny shift, the five to nine has kind of dealt with that. But it's those new emerging disasters in the amber-red category that usually come to a night handover. And they often have not had the same senior attention, maybe, because of the nature of an on-call shift for the medical reg in the day. So often I find myself, in if I'm the night registrar, doing a lot of managing those sorts of conundrums. You know, I've seen this lady, she was very breathless earlier on. She's got a background of heart failure. I've given her some fruzamide, but I think it would be useful for someone to see her in a couple of hours. I would usually take those on myself because that's a sort of two or three hours ago event. Unlike the things from like the morning, you know, Doris has fallen over, she's done her hip, they've mended it and now she's agitated well those things will have been dealt with throughout the day so it's new emerging problems often isn't it at the night handover and obviously the disasters in A&E and the medical assessment unit 
Yeah, and maybe patients who may have been waiting during the day in ED or elsewhere who actually, because they've been waiting so long, end up getting more unwell. And those are the ones, those are the ones who end up getting handed over from the day shift to uh, night shifts during the week. And the other thing that I would say is that most of the ward patients from a normal working day who are sick should have had a review from a consultant or registrar as a minimum and should have a plan established if things get worse with this patient out of hours to help the on-call team. And so moving on to our next uh, handover junction, uh, I guess the next one is if you've then done the night shift on a weekday and then you're handing over in the morning to the day team on a normal day. Uh, And so what are the differences, Alice, between handing over to the day team when you've just done a set of nights? Yeah, I think um, a sense of euphoria from the night team is the biggest (laughs) No, seriously. Um, so the biggest thing I think is in the A&E, the take management, I think is something that's very different um, in the morning because there's more, there's always more humans around, aren't there? It always feels a bit more like there's, oh, thank God the day team are here and the nights can go home. Coordinating who's left to be seen, um, those little itty bitty jobs that would happen in the other handovers, but are even more vital because someone's going to sleep. And the other thing I was just thinking about with the, the handover in the morning after nights is communicating with the consultants what is urgent on what you've dealt with because I don't know how it works in England but we are still operating on a a variation of papyrus when it comes to (laughs) post-take ward rounds and we're still very much on paper in a biro so when you are handing over and the, the consultant might suggest that you can stay for a bit and it gets to your sh- your shift and you, you obviously go there might be other patients on that list that you need to tell the consultant to see first to clarify the urgency because he's just got a big sheet of paper with you know bed one five to 87 so that's an a different bit of handover that happens in the morning as opposed to the night yeah and i guess if you are speaking to your consultant who's coming to do post take probably the first point of priority is who are we going to see first and often most consultants in my experience have said any disasters overnight has anyone died unexpectedly anyone who's gone to itu unexpectedly or have any of the ward patients deteriorated who need to be seen as a priority so so that's a really important skill for all of our listeners if you're not going to be present for the whole of the post take then you need to hand over effectively to the consultants coming in on the day shift and the consultants i think from my experience they they actually really like knowing how it's been for you and knowing what they've got to deal with just like we all do um so i've never had anyone in a consultant position going oh yeah whatever you know don't worry about it just go kind of thing they always want to hear what you've got to say so it's just a good it's a learning exercise for everyone isn't it at the end of the day a good handover yeah definitely and one other thing which will vary depending on location is if you feel you need an urgent specialty opinion for a patient who is really sick often it's something you haven't needed to ring about during the night but you need a specialty opinion early in the morning you can ring the specialty consultant through switchboard i tend to do it about 8 30 in the morning if they're due to start at nine and if if it's a patient who's sick they'll want to know about the patient and so that could be a helpful way of offloading work for the day team by making those referrals just to get ahead of time but I'd probably only do that if it was a a time critical decision that absolutely can't wait until the post-it ward round is finished. Again I think it's probably UK-wide but certainly my consultant colleagues in Wales they are so 
proactive and that kind of retrieval service where you sort of swoop in as a specialty and take over the world that's needed in A&E or whatever, they don't have an issue with being, they'd rather know at nine if there's 87 cardiology patients and five MI sitting in recess than what find out at midday because it stuffs up their day as much as it does the patient's care. So I think it's a really valuable lesson. And speaking to the consultant in general, when you're stuck and you're just, you'll want to go home safe, you want the patients to be safe. It's such a good way of doing it. You know, us registrars, we're all over the shop, aren't we? The bosses are on the shop floor trying to keep everything on the straight and narrow, aren't they? So letting them know directly, I think, is a really good idea, actually. And then we move on to something slightly different, which is the weekend, which is a whole different kettle of fish. And so if we talk about a day weekend, handing over to a night shift during the weekend, it's very different. You... Don't have all of the services that are that are available during the week. That might include things like imaging, such as MRI or complex CT scans. All these things might only be available during the week. So, Alice, do you have any particular thoughts on weekend handovers from days to nights? Yeah, I think, um, again, it boils down to the, the med reg skill of triaging, doesn't it? And I think if, especially where we've where I've worked, recently the out of hours provision of diagnostics for example you mentioned that already Sam that can put a real spanner in the works when you're going to a handover because normally you just do the CT or you just image their spine or and I think it helps to have a contingency for that i.e justify your thoughts because with all the will in the world the night registrar is a vulnerable beast and they're feeling vulnerable, aren't they? I'm about to go into night shifts and I'm feeling vulnerable already about Friday night. But you're sitting there and you're just hoping that the job is tied up. You can't help the diagnostics aren't there. Of course you can't. We, we don't all live in a tertiary centre, but it helps to say, well, I've, I've thought about this and my middle ground was I've asked the surgeons to see them first or we've done a fast scan or I've slapped an echo, you know, to kind of give confidence that you've done what you can. Cause you can't help there's no scanning or there's no cardiologist in the middle of the night so it's just clarifying your thinking I think yeah and I guess the other thing to think about is that it's often weekends where you are more likely to be involved in decisions regarding referrals to larger centres or tertiary centres for specialty opinions such as neurosurgery or cardiothoracic surgery and what is just so helpful when you turn up for a night shift and there is just an established plan with an if this, then that parameter-based handover. You almost don't need to engage your brain, you know. Um, subarachnoid hemorrhage, GCS is currently 13. If GCS drops by more than two points, then you need to rescan and rediscuss, no questions asked. I suppose when you're um, ha- having the conversations, I'm kind of where, with, say, neurosurgery, as we're using that example, I'm almost wary of, what my colleagues, i.e. me, if it was a different shift, would want those parameters to be. Because they're not going to tell you. You've got to prompt these people because they're busy and stressed out. So exactly. So when do you want me to ring you back? And then you've got all the nuggets um, already. Yeah, I find it fascinating. that the The weekend is such a bizarre function, isn't it, in a hospital? And you do tend to go from sick person to sick person because that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Especially as the registrar, you're you're managing expectations of the team and saying you're not going to be able to see every single tom you know tiny thing you've got to think there's only three pairs of hands at night and there's the same in the day so kind of managing expectation in handover i think is good and having the more information about that the better 
Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things, which again, people will have differing opinions on, uh, it's one of those things where you really, really don't want to have to hand over a procedure, especially a registrar level procedure like a chest drain or a lumbar puncture. I mean, to justify handing that over, the decision must have had to be made in the last hour or so in order to have to hand that over. And I've never had anything like that ever handed over to me. Uh, what about you, Alice? Have you ever had an urgent or important procedure um, handed over that needed to be done out of hours? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny though isn't it I think so my approach is probably slightly different I the chest drain for the pneumothorax no brainer there is literally zero excuse although the BTS guidelines are changing for those interested not yet though so at the moment uh, primary secondary is all the same and you do the you do the you do the tap and then you do the drain but if it's something like a lumbar puncture for a subarachnoid, I had one the other day a postcoital headache well over 12 hours of onset, sounds like a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And I was having what can only be described as an apocalyptically bad night shift. And even the thought of a, a easy peasy, slim man with a palpable spine and a lumbar puncture put me into fear. And I actually feel that in some circumstances, certain procedures, if you're doing them out of hours, are more risky if you're doing them than if a fresh face does them. That would be my only caveat to the, I agree, there's no excuse for a potentially, like a DC cardioversion. If you're waiting to hand that over and it's urgent enough, you're going to do it, just do it in the night because they need it. Oh, 100%. Whereas if there's any amount of um, urgent, no, emergent, not urgent need, then I think sometimes a fresh set of slept eyes might be better, but only in specific circumstances. I agree, handing over something that's been there for four hours is just beyond inconsiderate (laughs) yeah and i should say as well that a lot of the stuff we're talking about in terms of a day to night handover is equally valid for a night to day handover at the weekend because apart from maybe during the day having slightly more people around but not loads a lot of this stuff is extendable beyond days to nights and is pretty much across the board in terms of weekend working One last thing I wanted to talk about was calling the boss at the weekend. And this will vary on your trust and how well staffed you are in terms of consultant presence at the weekend. And I guess it's also relevant for night shifts in general. But I I heard a maxim a while ago, which I absolutely love, which was, if you're thinking about calling for advice, then you probably should be calling already. Great tip. I'm a big believer in that. Even at night, you know, so the consultants recently, and I'm going to try my absolute hardest when I'm in charge of the world to do this when I'm a consultant, but they've been coming to handover. And so they say to you in your eyes, ring me whenever you need me. And it almost scares you away from doing it, which is quite empowering. I think they know that though. They're playing a very clever game. They know, (laughs) but it really helps because they've said to you, they've given you the onus. If you you want to ring, just ring. And that's another good time for us as senior trainees to learn how to hand over to the boss at 3am or at 2pm when they're at home and they're not here yet. You know, it's succinct, clear, purposeful with an actual question that isn't just, oh, it could be actually, it could just be, can you come? I'm really struggling. I've never had to do that, but I would do it if I was really struggling. That's the answer. It's I'm ringing you because I can't I'm not sure what's wrong with this person. Can you come? So empowering. And they they kind of invite that now, at least where I've worked. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And we should probably actually say you should never feel guilty or hesitant for calling the boss out of hours if you ever feel uncomfortable. And I recently rang the boss at night for the first time, actually. And without disclosing location, I now work in a small DGH. It's a, it's a small hospital. Uh, and the night team consists of one reg, one clerking SHO and one F1 that covers all of the medical wards. So essentially two clerking doctors and I was also expected to cover the wards and sick patients there as well. And we came on to 22 patients waiting to be seen. ED was stacked, wards were full, it was half 10 at night and I thought, well there's no time like now. How much worse would it possibly have to get for me to consider phoning someone? And you know what? Credit to my consultant who came into the hospital, whipped through the post-take and between us, we had cleared the list by four in the morning. And that is the value of having a supportive consultant when you have a horrendously busy night like that. Well, they're just people like us, aren't they? Just a bit further along the treadmill. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's a really, that's really um, reassuring because those nights when you're, the, the numbers of handovers is especially for clerking it just makes your heart sink doesn't it and there's nothing that stops that feeling I don't think it's just knowing you can call for help and discuss it with someone it's just so nice and knowing that they're looking out for you So then moving on to the next thing we're talking about, which is actually giving a handover. And Alice, it's going to depend on how unwell the patient is when we hand over. And obviously different medical registrars have different styles of handover. And there are some essentials which you just have to include in your handover. So Alice, what are some of the absolute essentials which you just have to include when you're handing over? So I think in terms of the setting, which isn't the specific handover itself, but one voice at a time and everyone's listening and make sure the whole team that's coming into the shift is there. So sometimes I know if the registrar and the clerking doctor are present, they'll start the handover, which is really irritating. I think the whole incoming team need to be there. And then in terms of content, SBAR is a very trendy thing and it's very useful, but any old structure you like, there's loads. <clears throat> wherever you work, wherever you've worked before, what other specialties you've worked in, ITU use different ones, medicine, I'm sure cardiology do. But basically, demographic, we have hospital numbers, name, location. So stuff on a patient sticker or on their GP record to know who the hell you're dealing with. Because some people forget that. They get halfway through the blooming blood gas or the or the renal yeah. function results and they haven't said who the person is. And, and I can I just ask who, who you're talking about? Yeah. And eventually it becomes a learning habit and people change. But definitely demographics. You've got to have basics. Exactly. It's uh, like a dating app. Name, age, sex, location, exactly. right? <laughs> and then I guess... Sorry, Alice, go on. No, no, I was just going to say and hobbies, but I was being fantastic. <laughs> so yeah, name, age, sex, location, all the demographics, hospital numbers. Location is really important when patients move all throughout the day or night. And depending on what type of task it is, um, presents complaints, relevant comorbidities, you don't want to be listing 
irrelevant comorbidities which aren't actually anything to do with their current condition. And this one for me is absolutely critical. Their current ceiling of care. It just has to be said. It has to be determined. And if they haven't got one, my first question to the person who's handing over is, how come we're handing this over to the night shift without this being determined already? Exactly. And even if the treatment escalation plan is is different in your mind, maybe, from what you've been formulating, just knowing that they've thought about that at all is so useful. I think it's probably the question I ask the most. It's... Um, what can I do tonight to help with that? Which is, can be a bit passive aggressive. That's probably a microaggression I should avoid. But, um, <laughs> you know, saying, and how can I help with that problem? But not in those words. More like, what, what do would we, you like? What, what do we need to do overnight? Yes. And then followed by, and if that doesn't work, what happens then? Because a lot of people are really sick and really, really frail that you would do a hell of a lot of other stuff for than on the paper you you might think based on frailty. But, you know, I think, yeah, the treatment escalation plan is like, I think I say it all the time. I think I say it every time a junior colleague hands anything over. I, I probably do. I'm like you, Sam. It's like a broken record. And what's their treatment escalation plan? I should just have a button. <laughs> like a like a wind-up thing and like Woody yeah. has in his back in Toy yeah, Story. I was just, just thinking that, exactly, like Woody on Toy Story. What's the treatment escalation plan? <laughs> it's It makes people safe. That's the thing. If there's a treatment escalation plan, we all know what we're up to and everyone's on the same page and the patient gets better care, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is that you really don't want to walk into someone who has maybe been seen by a twilight doctor overnight who then leaves at 11 or 12 and leaves a patient with no escalation plan because if they arrest, you know, what are you, what are we going to do? And so we're mainly talking about the red handover jobs here. And obviously you're going to be including handing over the escalation plan and the relevant blood tests. I can't stress enough how important it is that these blood tests are relevant. You know, you shouldn't just be listing facts off because you did the blood test and by the way, their INR is 1.1. Think about why you're bringing the data to this group of people. But as you said, Alice, it's really important that everyone's heard. And actually, I might incorporate that into my handovers that now everyone is heard and only one voice at a time, especially maybe when especially when we rotate in August and some of the new F1s are maybe less sure about what exactly about exactly what sorts of things need to be handed over. And I think then it becomes rather than a a standardized chore that people coming to work just want to get through and people going home just want to get through it becomes an educational exercise and actually you can definitely if you do it like that and then as the senior leading that discussion at handover you're not questioning in an accusatory way but kind of asking the question to prompt thought in the other person giving the handover you're only going to make the handover better and by the end of the year I've only seen it a few times in prodigies, I'm, I'm kidding, but people that I've worked with a lot, they come to Hanover and they 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 probably look at the rotor and go, Alice is on. Oh, that means I'm going to have to do... Yeah, but maybe that's a good thing because I'm not going to be nasty to them. I'm just going to encourage them to do a really good, succinct... I don't... Exactly. I don't want to know how many cats they have today. That's, <laughs> that's important, but not today. I think that's all right to know. I agree. But not today. <laughs> Yeah, 
Absolutely. And so what I would say is really important is that as much as we can, having a, a parameter based approach. So if this, then that format of the plan, it's so important with setting your colleagues up to uh, have a much easier night than if these plans are not already established by the time you hand over. And accepting that sometimes there are unknowns. And in those unknowns, as long as you say I'm, it's unknown, that, that's, that's okay. As long as you've processed what, the, what you're trying to communicate and actually thought about it rather than just splurge a load of waffle about someone you've seen. On oh, my other bugbear, which is slightly off topic possibly, is just handing over the things that you've done just because you've done them. They don't need to be handed over if you've done exactly. them. Exactly. Like I've I've been done day and e and I've done this, that and the other and I just I just want you to be aware. To yeah. be aware. I don't like those unless there's a very specific exactly, unless it's a there's a subarachnoid hemorrhage in A and E. They're 25 and I've spoken to neurosurgeons just for you to be aware if they drop their GCS, that's a different thing. But just to let you know there's someone who's a bit sick on the ward. I'm like, yeah, it's a hospital. There's lots of them around. <laughs> it's a hospital. But do you know what I mean? I, I know mean, what you mean. I mean, focus on the point. Like, why are you telling me those things? Yeah, totally agree. And so without formally declaring it, we've already started talking about receiving handover. And one thing I really like that you said, Alice, is not asking questions just for the sake of asking questions. Obviously, ask questions to inform our treatment decisions or provoke thoughts in others, as you said, um, such as where are we going with this treatment or what's this patient's escalation plan, etc. I think receiving handover is just you've got to let people. I realise I've, I've said a lot about what I ask them, but actually you do have to let people say what they've come to say in a way um, and then take the opportunity to maybe narrow their field for next time. But if they've got something to say and they've been stressing about it and they've thought about it and they want to share it with you, kind of let them do the talking as much as you can without interrupting their train of thought. And one thing that I think helps with this, which isn't used in all trusts or certainly not the ones which I've worked in, uh, is the use of technology during handover, which can be massively helpful and is actually mentioned in the Acute Care Toolkit 1. They say that technology should be used to its maximum efficacy where possible. And having a screen and computer there in handover so you can say this patient is in bay one, bed one, you can snap over to bay one, bed one. And even if it takes uh, a minute or two prior to handover to get those systems up and working, you can get their imaging up, get their blood test, get the ROBS. Most of the time you can look at these things remotely and it gives you the ability to take a snapshot of where this patient is starting from at the beginning of the night. And it saves you time later on by flipping through 20 pages of notes to, to get the same information. I think um, I wrote that on my little spiel earlier, actually. Digitalization is such a massive part of handover. And gen generally, patient safety communications, whatever they are, with whoever they are. Um, and I, we don't have the luxury of much digitalized. We've got GP records and results and stuff, but you can't access them remotely unless you're on a desktop. But, I mean, even then, if you're in a place where they don't have a lot of digital infrastructure you can still get a computer in the mess and use that while you're handing over or in a room you know there's ways to get around it aren't there but you're right that is so useful to just be able to sneak on and see the sodium's been 110 for six months that's okay but great spot that's really relevant but not in this situation you know that kind of way of framing it. yeah 
And so the last thing I've got here, Alice, is an example of the same case uh, being handed over, done poorly and then done well. And I have to say that in the past, I have had colleagues who are a bit laissez-faire with their handover. And so this is just a functional example of how someone might hand over in a laissez-faire way. So let's say you come to handover and this is handed over to you. So there's a guy in his 50s or maybe in his 60s. He's downstairs in recess. I think his name's Mr. Smith or something. Uh, anyway, he's got bad heart failure and I've given him some fruzamide, but he's not really improving. He's still quite breathless. He probably needs to look at within the next half hour or so. And so what I've done is repeated the same scenario and gold plated it, which might sound something like this. So here's my take two. So there's a 79-year-old man in ED recess, bed two. His name is Robert Smith and his hospital number is 123456. He came in with acute breathlessness on a background of known heart failure. He had an echo in June, which showed an ejection fraction of 25% with normal valves. He's had MIs in the past and has had a previous bypass, uh, but no chest pain on this occasion. His obs are stable, his heart rate's 90, blood pressure's 110 over 70, sat's in 90% on air but improved to 95% on 2 litres. He's not got any COPD or indications for uh, lower oxygen targets. His chest x-ray looks like pulmonary edema and his bloods are otherwise okay. Um, his ECG looks the same as his baseline. I've given him 40 milligrams of IV fruzamide, which was about an hour ago, and he looks like he's improved a little bit just before I came up. Um, he's got a pre-existing uh, treatment escalation plan from his admission in June, which states he's not for ICU, but would be for a trial of NIV, which seems probably the most appropriate next step. Um, I've not given him any GTN yet, but you could consider that uh, in addition to the NIV uh, if he doesn't improve. Um, I've spoken to his wife, who's his next of kin, uh, and she's up to date, and the site managers are trying to get him a CCU bed. Thank you, thank you. And then you stand up and bow in front of the whole congregation. But hey, you've got all the info. It's better to do it properly once than have someone go, are they on oxygen? What's the treatment escalation plan? Have you spoken to the family? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, that was pre-prepared and was somewhat manufactured, but it's still uh, important to just include all of the relevant stuff. So Alice, we're nearly at the end. Any closing thoughts about anything to do with handover we have spoken about so far in this episode? I would just say that the feeling that the little things are pointless in handover needs to go. I think everything is important. What did we say? Important, but not urgent. And the traffic light is a dream to think of. As the medical registrar, I think handover is all about leadership and communication and triage, really. And something that I need to take away from today, which I definitely will, is the power of good delegation and empowering your team to do the work and not feeling like you're doing it all on your own. Because sometimes that is how it feels. And that's why people love and hate the role. But a good handover makes a good shift is my take home message, I would say. Absolutely. And I have to say, I think that's a great point to end on. And so that is pretty much the end of today's show. It's been a delight to welcome Dr. Alice Hall to the show, Acute Medical Reg in the Wales Deanery. So thank you, Alice, for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. And listeners, don't forget, we love to hear from you. So give us a shout on our Twitter. That's at Podcast. You can like, follow, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. 
And for those of you who want to go above and beyond and support the show with a pay-what-you-can donation, it's buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, that's all from us. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. <laughs>